Welcome back to Laugh Jest. Hello. Home of the laughs. Thank you for tuning in to Laugh Jest. Anders Lee here right. with Alex Vitek. <laughs> Do you want it to open that way? Yeah, with you yawning into the microphone. That was a voice. <laughs> We're fighting already. <laughs> I am the Supreme Chancellor. <laughs> Let's just go through the names. Let's do the names. Anders Lee here. I'm Alex Patak. I'm Ragameta. Holy shit. <laughs> Sorry, I was reading a tweet. What is it about this room? It's it's the cat fumes. It is all that peyote I ate. They're giving do you eat peyote? I don't know. Brain disease. <laughs> uh peyote you smoke. Hello. And then you throw up and uh And then you see uh like uh hippopotamus. It's right? like that show um Aaron Paul did about the cult. The road? The path. The path. <laughs> even, even less specific. Yeah, it's not quite <laughs> a road. Paul, breaking Bad, Aaron Paul? Give it five years, yeah, it'll yeah. be a road. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I've noticed about... I've seen a few of these in the past couple of years, but there used to be on every corner, I would see a... a, a an Aaron Paul? An Aaron Paul. Yeah, yeah, I would yeah. see a, like a poster of Aaron Paul like advertising. It was always a liquor company and he was just like holding the liquor and with like a bunch of people around him and screaming he was so good in breaking bad that everybody wanted to be him because he was like brian cranston's cool but he's kind of old and like he's not sexy whereas aaron paul is attached to this like television masterpiece and also like young and getting fucked up and ad companies saw that and were like cover him in aspirin yeah (laughs) I, I'm glad uh, Brian Cranston just sticks to uh, major roles and stuff because uh, you know eventually he's gonna he's gonna get too too overexposed and then we're gonna find out he's like a libertarian or something. Yo, dude, we're gonna find it. out he's a Ron Paul supporter. <laughs> yeah, he so is Ron. He's playing Ron Paul. <laughs> that would be a major role he could take. Uh, I saw him in Godzilla, which was not a sellout. Greatest I guess, movie but- <laughs> of all time. <laughs> major role for 30 minutes it was like god damn this that, Godzilla that entire movie god just, damn him <laughs> the entire movie is about the military it's not even about the monster <laughs> I I really liked it it's so it's they jingoistic had a, they I had a drop kick one. moment are you talking about Shin Godzilla or the the US Godzilla with Brian the Christ? very re- yeah that one yeah I really want to see Shin Godzilla and it's as far as I can tell impossible and I don't have a PC anymore so I can't torrent because my Mac will be flooded with hentai porn and if I'll, only. And then I'll be uh, you, Kurt, Kurt Eichenwald. Eichenwald. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Tentacle form. See, folks, we're doing topical political humor. <laughs> this it's will that be, kind of podcast. That will be old in about seven hours. <laughs> yeah, old enough for old people porn. That wasn't as good as a riff as I was hoping it would be. Uh, what happened today, fellas? It's been a big day. It, oh, June 8th. Um, well, earlier we had uh, Comey. Talking, I don't. I don't have too much to say about that personally. But uh, did any of you watch it? I, w- I watched a little bit, and then I got bored and went back to my uh, scintillating data entry job. Uh, well, it's just like what what's going to happen here? Uh, it, it didn't offer us anything we didn't already know. All that it revealed is that uh, John McCain is still very, very old. He's riddled with he Alzheimer's. very old. He should not hold the position and, in public office. And babbling <laughs> and incoherent. And it's delightful. <laughs> he's I, a maverick on talking normal. <laughs> he's a linguistic maverick, yeah. <laughs> 
I tuned in around the time where uh, Angus King, the honorable senator from Maine, uh, one of the Senate's only mustachioed uh, patrons, was asking Comey about, like, setting up a date with Trump, like the, the setting up the dinner. And it's like, did, well, did you invite yourself over? And I was like, no, 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 he invited me, he invited me. And he was like, I actually had to cancel plans with my wife and go uh, eat with Trump. And then, of course, they had like a, a little back and forth about, um, well... Yeah, I missed Hamilton over this shit. Yeah. Like, well, that's... Uh, I won't question any further about that one, director. Um <laughs> This is so boring already. Yeah. Yeah, even talking about it. So, was, so my plan was like I'm not going to watch it and then if Comey like stands up and points a finger at the American flag and is like he grabbed my penis on video or something yeah. I'd go and watch it later. <laughs> what do you think people tuning into like did you re- did you see like DC bars were holding screenings of this hearing? Yeah, uh, and people were like people missing work to watch it. What do people think is going to happen? And why do they think that? It's because they are so tied into the idea of an honorific system of the presidency that Trump is soiling that if some big speech happens where uh, you can impeach him from there, like it's an episode of West Wing. Exactly. The world is fixed and I wasn't wrong the whole time. I am not owned. But they're really just all owned. Instead of the West Wing, it's the newsroom in that it is very, very, very bad, opposed to the West Wing, which is just very bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, I it would have been somewhat exciting because the revelations that came out like yesterday were kind of interesting, but we already had them. So like the the hearing was just like which going ones? over that Trump was like, I expect loyalty, I need loyalty. We knew about that though, right? Yeah, it was a few weeks well, ago, was, I think. I think that that particular line was like... Um, he was quoting Kendrick. <laughs> <laughs> well, this isn't even going to come out until a week or so in the future. Yeah, so. and we're, gonna have, we're not having Kendrick on for yeah. months, but, probably. Yeah. Here is a, I expect a lot of growth. <laughs> here is a scintillating, I guess, in the moment kind of fun podcast dynamic to capture. Uh, we got a hung parliament, baby. Over in the UK, we just Ooh, found he's out. He's an absolute boy. The uh, absolute madman takes it again. Uh, friend of the show, Jack. <laughs> Andy Palmer, Andy in, the Palmer next in the room, house. Doing more British voices. Hello. It is Bedlam here at the Alex Patax Apartment Studios. This is, yeah, this is like a labor a labor party. Uh, across it's a labor party. Yes. Jack Smith, the fourth friend of the show, just tweeted that... Corbin is the odds-on favorite to become the next prime minister. Holy to the, the shit! Markets. Smash yeah. that RT button, fam. Okay, so I'm looking at J.K. Rowling right now um, on Twitter. What did? She, where's this fucking? Wh- who did she retweet? Those she, so she'll she'll tweet in like an hour. Like I will be J.T. J.K. Rowling in my grave if this happens. <laughs> uh, yeah, she'll be like. Uh, uh, Corbin is Naval Long Bottom or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> I don't know anything. Uh, hey, Corbin's Neville Long Bottom. Drunk JK Rowling. <laughs> hey, the, uh, the, uh, Snape uh, Patronus charm. Even, I mean, uh, not even trying. Seriously, anymore. people. <laughs> I wrote a play about how Harry got lost in his own butt. He's the <laughs> butt charm. This is how many J.K. Rowling accounts show up when I just put in J.K. Rowling. There's J.K. Rowling verified. There's always J.K. Rowling. There's uh, 
JK Rowling, and that's uh, this username is Joe King Rowling. That's how it's spelled. Uh, JK Rowling bot uh and owls for jk rowling oh. that's a that's a new pack uh, in the UK. <laughs> yeah. and then there's then there's jk rowling hugged me which is just pictures of uh people hugging, hugging JK, JK rowling, rowling. unlike yeah. kesha yeah <laughs> who did not get to hug hang, hug seinfeld uh which is the real atrocity of the week that is what we will be discussing on our show <laughs> We'll be back in five. That's old now. That happened yesterday. Yeah, no one cares anymore. The future is a terrible place. It just moves you too fast. You can't talk about anything. We're all goldfish. Uh, but this new labor uh, upset, man. I mean, I and we were talking about this on the way walk here, but I had really prepared myself for like a standard conservative win. You know, kind of yeah. like an upset by five points or something. Yeah, because yeah. I don't even live there. I don't need to be hedging bets <laughs> on a fucking labor doing an upset. But I'm very excited that he. it's a hung parliament. Um, just the idea that maybe there could be any kind of left momentum that could spread around. I've been reading biographies about the Soviet Union, and that's what they were really hoping was going to happen, would be they win over their government, and then, I mean, more than this, but (laughs) uh, win over in that they uh, storm the (laughs) buildings and physically take power with guns. But uh, their whole uprising depended on germany overthrowing their government and that didn't happen and wait which uprising are you talking about the russian revolution well yeah but what the german thing wasn't for a few years later right but the idea was that their revolution couldn't survive uh, oh without without international socialism yes and that's why see which is why it's exciting even though it's not here and that's you know why i'm getting drunk now (laughs) but it's it's (laughs) not like every other thursday (laughs) <laughs> but see what i keep going back to is like brexit you know i uh, hate to say it but it doesn't have to be a bad thing you're like, a bad it's, boy and i, love I know it. it's that that's my edgy take on uh on comedy it's instead of you know talking rape i'm talking <laughs> the brexit bad boy I think nigel farage is hot <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't kick him out yeah of i'll say it <laughs> i'll say it pc police <laughs> But it is unfortunate that the the far right captured the uh, you know the Brexit the the Brexit movement because that could have easily gone in the left's direction and it can and that's what could happen if there is a Labour government is you get people like Corbyn talking to leaders around the world people in Greece people in Spain who are in in countries where the EU is being really strict and unreasonable and you say like say to them hey what if we start our own thing. You know, it would be it's going to be tough, obviously. But what if you have something that's not purely but based on? Is it that they're not doing it for the right reasons? You mean, uh, well, yes, that's that's yeah, the yeah. problem with Brexit. Yeah, you know, yeah, is that it was done out of uh, xenophobia. Yeah, but it, it also I think the that's EU is not a though. good. You yeah, know, that shows that's where what... the actual political momentum is. Yeah, that's what the contextually, yeah, yeah, that's what's important. Right, it's but a so fuck you, Anders. <laughs> <laughs> but if it's not, but if their conservatives aren't in power, sure, then you get a chance to take that xenophobia and say, "Hey, what are you actually mad about?" Huge. This is huge. Right. What is it you actually don't like about the EU? Is it because someone down the street from you speaks a different language now, or is it because yeah. you don't have a job? 
You what, know? what I like about this is not just that the conservatives got beat. That's always really fun and great uh, and unexpected in this case. But it shows the whole dynamic of centrism versus leftism in these supposedly center left parties. It takes the whole dynamic and turns it on its head, you know? Yeah. What we are told everywhere and what they were saying in England is that you cannot win with a left candidate because they're... Uh, uh, oppositions to markets are laughable and the common man will see this and look at the goodly bread maker down the road and their heart will go to the voting booth and that's fucking not true people have needs and they want to be met like if you go back talking about u.s elections if you go back and you look at dennis kucinich's platform in 2004 yeah it is your boy and you poll those if you poll those policies now it would be almost unanimous on the left it is crazy that you say that because i earlier tonight i was standing outside ucb and this gentleman uh, in a dennis kucinich 2004 t-shirt hoppled by he was like had his shorts were hiked up to a like uh, very very far above the knee, and he was like hobbling. He was like crouched, and I was thinking like, and he had a huge smile on his face, very happy man. I was like, that's gonna be me when I'm like sixty. I'm gonna look <laughs> ridiculous. Outside but people are like, you know what, Anders was right. Yeah. <laughs> Please, put, I was in Edinburgh in 2017. The the rest of the city's on fire behind uh, me. This is a <laughs> vegan cupcake shop now. <laughs> it's literally the only thing that exists in this on this land. <laughs> the view. So like the, he was walking like this. I don't even know how to describe it with words. Okay, Anders is doing a this? walk that's like. Um, it's a straight it's like leg. A, it's like he's taking a poop while running. Yes. <laughs> yeah, It's exactly. like he's taking a poop while running. Uh, this is a very interesting story, but I was really hoping you were going to say you saw Dennis Kucinich. Oh. <laughs> New York, and that could happen. But. Fox News correspondent, Dennis Kucinich. Is he on Fox News? Is he, that true? Yeah, I think I, he was. What? He definitely was. Yeah, I'm not sure if he's still with Oh, Trump's like book. a couple times or something? No, yeah. after he after he lost his seat, he got a job. Oh, okay, like, that makes more fuck sense. Fuck it, I'm yeah, a Reaganite yeah. now. Right. <laughs> well, no, they, they like Pull having Pull up your on... pants, I'm Dennis Kucinich. <laughs> Occasionally they'll throw. Well, th- well, that's the thing with Corbyn too. It's like the the conservatives are like, okay, we uh, we don't want to give uh, the left its due, so let's let's take its most extreme like uh, caricature um, caricatures and like put them on air. And with Kucinich and Corbyn, it's like some people are like, oh, I actually kind of like these ideas i like this what this guy's saying well the people who are susceptible to right-wing programming are the same people who are susceptible to left-wing programming because they're upset and they don't know why or they're upset and they think they know why and they need a narrative and that's Mm -hmm. why fox news is so successful is because it's like uh the jews and then you're like oh great i got it now they like Jews and all. F- I, Fox News? Yeah, that's one ethnic group. Uh, they like group. certain Jews. Yeah. They like uh, Jews with machine guns, for sure. They like Paul Wolfowitz. <laughs> He's Jewish, right? Obviously, yeah. <laughs> Paul Wolfowitz? <laughs> with that strong Christian name? <laughs> well, something uh, I don't want to. We have an, an interview uh, coming up with Nicole Ashoff, um, who wrote Nuke Prophets of Capital. Straight fire! But some I don't want to tease it too much, but something we were talking about, Oprah. What if Oprah was not trying to talk lamps, you know? What if she <laughs> was trying to, like, get people engaged politically? Does Oprah sell lamps? 
Well, then it it's would be thing, lame. Like, well, a cover of the cover of O magazine always has a nice lamp. So Fucking she's o de facto a lamp sales person. Is the most sexual name for a magazine that is just about old lady things. Oh, is it? I actually haven't read it. Is it not? Yeah, it's pretty sexual. I think "Oh, is yeah. it?" would be a more sexual name. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the English. Oh, this English old thing. <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> is it? <laughs> uh, you won't be slapped, mate. Yo, I did. The, okay, so Andy and I did our open mic earlier, and uh, we did it all in English accents for the ten people who showed up. It was very effective. They hated it. Uh, they <laughs> I liked sat it. there and oh, did you like Ch- it? Jay and because I because we it. were not getting the reinforcement we needed. Well, yeah, <laughs> wait, wait, because wait. we're in the back and we're scared. Oh, uh, because you know it's God. an intimidating environment. These open mics—they're not safe spaces. Anyone Alex. who is listening, do not become an open mic host. Uh, There's nothing to gain. Don't do comedy. <laughs> Comedy. Yeah. If there's one thing you can take we away from... We said that last week. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I've been thinking about that. Is that like the right thing to say? I, I feel like comedy is beautiful. It is a beautiful thing. I don't I mean, think we, we need more people. It. I don't think anyone listening is going to take our word for like... He's going to listen to us about I'm doing very it respected doing it. in the left jazz community. <laughs> uh, it's the one community yeah. I will say this for. Is, yeah. <laughs> At least one of them likes you. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah. We'll reveal at the end of the show. I love you, Alex. Wait, so maybe we'll edit this out, but you, Jay was there? Jay Welch. And mm-hmm. what, what are his feelings on the court? He was excited. Oh, really? Yeah. I think if with the right level of momentum and showing that the left can uh, win elections and do real politics and actually lead, pave a path forward in a way that has not happened in the last twenty years, we can win over these like hard-boiled, uh, cynical centrist types. It's just going to be very annoying and awful doing it. Right. Well, I was as I was just looking through uh, J.K.'s. Twitter feed, something she was not JKing about, is she says, uh, she's talking about, like, this is from today. She says, uh, give me a second. Unfortunately, here. one of the reasons we're going to win people over is because conditions are going to get worse. You know, I think when I, I don't know when you guys made the transition, but uh, it was, for me, it was like probably around 09, 2010, when Obama turned out to be who he was. I didn't really have solidified politics at that age. I had read a lot of Oh, you were Al kind of fresh out of high school, right? Stuff. I was in high school when this was happening. When did you graduate high school? I got to college in 2009. So Okay, yeah, like yeah. Like the market had already crashed and then Occupy was happening while I was in college. Uh yeah, I was but, very excited and you know that's when I started writing. That's when I got into journalism and then I, I think it was the Geithner appointment when I was like, "Oh, this is weird. You all fucking with me, uh, mate. Yeah, Timothy Geithner became the Secretary of Treasury, and uh, Matt Tebbe was like, not good. I'm like, very good, Matt. And, uh, <laughs> Nailed him, Matt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For me, like, I remember uh, lead in, like, the primaries for 2008, like, with the very early stages, so this would have been 2007, I guess. I remember uh, I was, you know, kind of a liberal kid. I didn't follow it too closely i you know i liked john Kerry. i wanted him to win in 04 but i remember like, 2020 special k Kerry, Kerry, 2020, <laughs> 2020 baby Kerry yeah. booker that. <laughs> you'll uh, be the jeb bush of the democrats <laughs> <laughs> uh 
Please leave. John Kerry's brother. Wait, let's find him. Uh, Reginald Kerry. <laughs> he was a uh, more shot in Vietnam. That's why we like him. <laughs> he has no arms. <laughs> but I remember like just learning about the healthcare system and being and hearing Ralph Nader talking about like we should have universal health well all politicians talking about like we should have universal health care and i was like oh yeah we should we we don't have that yeah that should be that's a basic thing we should have and then uh you know with obama i remember th- thinking like oh well he's for universal health care cool and then like, well obama's masterful in that he seems so radical so vaguely when he first shows up on the scene we're just like we need a lot of changes and you're like yeah we do need a lot yeah. of changes yeah 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 but if you looked at his policies back then i remember as like a 16 year old looking at his website or whatever and it's like oh well where's the universal health care part it's like a lot of really complicated stuff age. about premium what well, caps or whatever i mean he he did advocate for that campaign wise and that was maybe going to be introduced and then the democrats just completely punted on that almost well he never but he never like as a as a politician before he ran for senate he would talk about a single payer plan but once he got elected to the senate that quickly uh he stopped talking about it but they're always for universal health care and they're like like, hush yeah yeah (laughs) in theory universal health care is the thing. And that's, you know, what Nicole was talking about. In like, theory and practice, everywhere but here. <laughs> yeah. She was saying, like, that's a thing that's people understand. That's something you can mobilize people around. Um, so, anyway, J.K. Rowling uh, tweets, political correctness gone mad. It's a retweet of this guy, Hugo Rifkind, who says, it's like, it's amazing you still have to say it, but the people who disagree with you might not be evil. They might just be wrong if she's a, in a way acknowledging that she's if very, she is acknowledging wrong, she's wrong great yeah i'll take it <laughs> i mean the rationalizations if you know if I'm only still, Voldemort acknowledged he was wrong <laughs> i i'm still like a little hesitant to you know because i feel like something's gonna happen where um corbin's gonna get assassinated or something or what, what? why know. would you say that i could well just to to put that out there that it could <laughs> this is very upsetting to me that it well, could why happen. do you think that it's you know why well it's obvious like he, he wants to take on the most powerful interest in the world he was already the i don't think that'll happen okay I, it could um, happen it, it, i'm just saying it could the maybe political assassinations are a myth uh, no one has ever died doing politics. He's probably not perpetrated by the libertarian media. He might not be. <laughs> he might not be prime minister. He's on the odds-on favorite right now, but I still think there's a good chance the you know because as from, it's a, it's a victory anyway because he did so well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good, but I, I'm just worried that like they're gonna be like, oh, the this same is way Hillary's a victory doesn't feel real. He's an absolute madman and uh, gif of him as a soccer player. Uh, that is what I'll say. Now let's go into our interview. I think the time has come. It's a hot one, ladies and gentlemen. Take them clothes off. Strap in. We got Nicole Ashoff strapped into the booth. And uh, she's talking about her book, New Profits of Capital, out from Verso Books. It is a delightful read into the world of politics. Stay tuned. This has been Left Just. Thank you for tuning in to Left Jest. We are joined by the very talented writer, Nicole 
Ashoff. Woo! Uh, thanks for talking to us, Nicole, uh, on a school night. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, are the kids tucked in? They are, yeah. And I gotta ask, do they wear Karl Marx pajamas? Uh, I did at one time have a Karl Marx onesie for my older daughter, I'm not gonna lie, but uh, we're not cool enough any longer to have Karl Marx PJs. Where do you get a Karl Marx onesie? Oh, easy. Just Google it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always interested in uh, talking to like left-leaning people, like leftists and intellectuals who have kids and uh, are, you know, have a revolutionary mindset. Do you find those things ever uh, running into conflict with one another? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, Because you don't want your kids to turn out to be weirdos. So, (laughs) I mean, I have two daughters. They're nine and six, so they're you know they're they're not quite old enough yet to understand exactly how the world works. So they they're but you know they listen. So I, I always joke with my husband. It's like we want to first sort of give them a nice kind of liberal moral framework before we show them the hypocrisy of the system. So they're ah. not completely cynical and jaded. <laughs> Every birthday is an opportunity to learn about commoditization in your community. I've always said that. Well, they have way too many toys, so we're definitely failing on that front. Uh-oh. Mm. Sick. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure they'll find a way to repurpose them and uh, find a way to contribute them to the, the collective good of society. <laughs> uh, but yeah. yeah, let's say that. <laughs> sure. Oh, this uh, this bear is for the collective good. Everyone enjoy this bear. Just put it right in the middle of the cul-de-sac. <laughs> well, you know, I uh, I don't know if you've ever read it, but the autobiography of, of David Horowitz is terrifying. And he was raised as a red diaper baby and blames all of his horrible right-wing politics on his parents. So I read that a long time ago, and it really was chilling and frightening. So I, I don't want to push my children too far to the left. I want them to discover it on their own. Otherwise, they could grow up to be David Horowitz. Yes. Oh, we, my God. We really don't want that... That's uh, fucking terrifying. I guess it is terrifying. Also, the the idea like when your brain is forming that the world needs to be uh, torn apart and restructured seems like a bit much. Uh, it is. Yeah, it's too much to handle. Well, uh, speaking of books, we all had the <laughs> we all had the pleasure of reading the New Prophets of Capital. Uh, great book. Anyone listening, please check it out. Um, but this is a book that you wrote in 2015, and I was wondering if we could start off by asking, like, what factors were at play in your deciding to write it, and how have those factors changed and not changed over the course of the past two years? Uh, well, I wrote it um, at the time I was teaching sociology at Boston University and had been there for a while. Um, you know, so I had a lot of interactions with undergrads. And I was teaching classes that, you know, kind of created an opportunity to talk about, you know, globalization and social problems and these kinds of things. And so I was really engaging with students a lot and realized that, you know, a lot of the kind of stuff that I had read, you know, was not really very interesting to them. The kind of things that I read and kind of was grounded in political economy was was not super interesting to them. Um, But at the same time, they really cared about what was happening in the world. And they were really taken in by kind of some of the really kind of popular solutions for, you know, the kind of social problems that the left cares about. So environmental destruction, inequality, poverty, you know, school reform. 
So I really kind of felt like, you know, I could take some of the stuff that I know and write it in a way that explains to them, yes, we all care about the same social problems, but all the solutions that are out there are not equal. And we really need to kind of think hard about what's on offer. So, you know, that's kind of where I was coming from when I wrote the book. And and the tone of the book and the kind of way that I wrote it actually is geared toward like a younger person or someone who hasn't really thought about politics a whole lot, um, but is interested in kind of the world around them. So, I mean, I guess that's kind of where I was coming from when I wrote the book. As far as like what's changed, well, the last year was pretty crazy, uh, <laughs> as, we, as you know. So I think it's kind of become more energized, I guess, in a way, in the sense of this, this sort of kind of state of the discourse out there, if we want to be really nerdy. Um, Let's do it. <laughs> just in terms of, you know, you have people who are really pumped and, you know, all of a sudden thinking about socialism, that they've never thought about socialism before. So that's changed. Um, but at the same time, I feel like people are really frightened um, and feeling a bit more cynical, you know, with the election of Trump. So I feel like actually more than ever, there's a kind of opening to kind of talk to people about building an alternative to capitalism and not just, you know, responding to the daily horror show coming out of Washington. Uh, may I ask, what were the kinds of books you thought these kids were having a hard time connecting with? Well, it's not even that they were necessarily having a hard time connecting with them. They just weren't even necessarily reading them. Um, because it's like in your sort of typical undergraduate education, let's say sociology, right? You you know, you have maybe an introductory textbook and you just get some snippets here and there. But a lot of it isn't really related to... A lot of it's kind of out of date, I hate to say that, or you don't really get to have like a long treatment of, you know, say political economy. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I think it's just sort of an, an art to kind of talk to younger people. Not that I've necessarily, you know, accomplished that, but that was the goal anyway. I think you've accomplished it. <laughs> and we're done here. <laughs> yeah, this was great. Uh, well, speaking of accomplishment, one of the figures that you start with in the book, of course, is Sheryl Sandberg, whose brand of politics, I think, has come under scrutiny from some circles in the past year or so, but also is still uh, defended by a lot of people. Back when you, in 2015, I remember she was, in, to a lot, in a lot of people's minds, kind of the standard bearer for feminism. Um, and why... To someone who maybe isn't following these things uh, as closely, why is that not maybe the best uh, spokesperson for a movement like that? Sheryl Sandberg is not alone. I mean, these days she's sort of one in a crowd of many. But when her book Lean In came out, like you said, it was sort of the first in a while, not the first ever by any stretch, but the first in a while of really sort of powerful books that kind of grabbed people's attention to really, you know, both point out the gender divide and also present, she presents a very clear-cut solution in that book, which is, I think, one of the reasons why it was so appealing to people, which is basically just be successful, strive to get to the top, and in doing so as a woman, you will therefore help all other women. Um, and as you said, this is, you know, something that's been criticized since then. You know, I was writing about it then, but since then there's been a lot of good stuff coming out. Um, and it's been criticized, of course, you know, many years before um, by, you know, solid second wave feminists. 
Uh, yeah, it, well, well, something that you point out in the book is that uh, one of her defenses against this critique is like, yeah, it's good for people to care about women living in poverty. These are things we should pay attention to, but that doesn't have to be in conflict with, um, you know, her brand of feminism, which, of course, is about uh, advancing through the, the corporate world. But as you point out, those things aren't really compatible, right? No, uh, no, I mean, in, in short, they're not compatible um, because one is saying strive and achieve and work hard for your boss and become super successful. Um, and that's fine. That could work out really well, I think, on an individual level and sort of, I suppose, in an aspirational way that could help women broadly in a kind of vague way, but in a really concrete way of helping, you know, all the women who are you know, sort of under the thumb of their bosses in these really just shitty jobs, that's not a strategy that's going to work um, in any way. And you see, really see that there were some hotel workers up in Boston who were kind of calling out Sandberg uh, a while back saying, hey, will you align with us? And it's like, you know, there's just kind of radio silence there because the model doesn't actually work. If all women are kind of uniting together, that's going to challenge capitalism in a way that's not really in, in, in Sandberg's model. If those women who were in the hotel workers' strike were we real feminists, they would have all owned separate hotel working chains. <laughs> or at least been on an aspirational path to do that. That should have been their goal. You only hold other women back by uh, working in general. <laughs> <laughs> it's a the point I'm making in the chapter is kind of a common sense point, which is a little bit uh, scary actually, um, because it's the, the kind of arguments that Sandberg and Hillary Clinton and you know a million other kind of mainstream feminists are making is the fact that it's so appealing to people is does make me wonder a bit about the kind of sort of class blindness or class bias that's inherent in this kind of worldview. Yeah, and that's interesting you say that. There's a passage from the book, uh, you're talking about Sandberg, uh, and I guess what you, you call trickle-down feminism, and you're quoting uh, Sarah Jaff, Sir Jaffe? I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it's uh, Jaffe. She argues that feminists should stop obsessing over the travels of some of the most privileged women in the world. Because in real life, most women are up against a wall. And uh, as you said earlier, you wrote this in 2015 or is published in 2015. Uh, did you think uh, that would be so relevant with the, the upcoming election and such a dominant narrative? And essentially, her supporters in some ways uh, over-identifying with her on a professional and personal level. Well, you know, I wasn't super surprised because it was, you know, it was the time I was writing this and it was published, it was gearing up toward, you know, you know, for the Hillary campaign. And it didn't surprise me that that became such a central kind of part of the campaign, unfortunately, because it's, the, you know, it's it's partly that the Democratic Party doesn't really have a class strategy. They don't really have a, w a way to actually become the voice of working class people because they don't want to. It didn't surprise me that this is sort of one of the strategies that became uh, adopted, though I was surprised that there wasn't, I mean, there was definitely pushback, but I, w I am still, I guess, a little surprised that uh, there isn't more pushback and people are really afraid of challenging uh, you know, this kind of, you know, saying class matters. I think a lot of women are kind of afraid to say that because, 
you know, they're, they're afraid of being called anti-feminist, which is nuts. I mean, if you're really a socialist, you have to also really be a feminist. Well, I, something that has definitely been pretty effective in silent, well, maybe not silencing me, but I guess like getting me to ease off a bit is this notion that you have to choose between feminism or anti-racism and uh, class-based politics. And who who is that narrative really serving that these things are separate? I think that one of the ways that you can kind of, you know, make yourself feel better and get over your fear is to, to look at successful struggles historically. Um, and all of them have not created these artificial divides between I care about class or I care about race or I care about, you know, sexism or patriarchy. It's like if you look at successful movements, uh, they blend all of these things together because these are, you know, things that working class people and working people have to deal with. Right. Your book was just so eye-opening to me, I know, reading it, because even though I already had adopted socialist politics before beginning it, I never really thought about foundations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and how that fits into the overall puzzle. Because all I know about where Bill Gates' money is going is that it's uh, (laughs) fixing very sick lads down in the Cape of the Horn. (laughs) And (laughs) that sounds like a good thing if you look at it from a distance. Uh, But when you actually examine it, everything ends up tying back into this greater picture of macro structural capitalism and uh it's kind of a part of every struggle in a way yeah i mean you know one of the things i should i should make clear is that i chose the people that i you know the four people that i talk about in the book which is cheryl sandberg john mackey oprah well five people really and then bill and melinda who work together in the foundation i chose them because they're not your typical greedy voracious capitalists and I don't think of them that way. I really chose them because they're sort of uh, exemplify the model of what they believe in. And I do think they kind of believe what they're saying. So if you think about people like Bill and Melinda Gates, they're not bad people. Um, and I think that they do, you know, good things. And I think they really believe in a kind of techno uh, fix. I think they really think, and in many ways, you know, they're right. Uh, in the sense that you can fix some stuff by throwing money at it. That is definitely true. Uh, And we should be throwing money at trying to come up with some technological solutions. That's also true. I think the problem is, and, you know, if you take a step back again and just look at the kind of bigger model that they're presenting, right, the kind of bigger model for fixing things like malaria, for for fixing things like global poverty, for... fixing things like inequality through school reform then you start to really ask questions about all right well you know who gets to decide what the model is how much is you know the very deep pockets of you know your foundation able to promote whatever vision you want and are people allowed to challenge that vision even though it has very concrete effects on their life so i think you really have to not just get caught up in oh this is a these are bad people or these are not bad people, but to really, and I try to emphasize this in the book a lot, to kind of look structurally at what it is they're actually proposing. Well, someone you talk a lot about is, of course, John Mackey, who's the CEO of Whole Foods, who, as you were just saying, really does or seems to believe in this model of sustainable, quote unquote, sustainable capitalism. 
very strongly. Um, what is the the premise of his ideology? Where, how does he think this is going to work? Well, I mean, yeah, Mackey is is um, interesting. He's definitely probably the least wealthy of the four kind of prophets that I talk about in the book, and he does kind of practice what he preaches. I mean, he's you know he's a libertarian, um, which is you know not necessarily great. a horrible thing, but a he's, great you know, thing, guys. <laughs> Not necessarily, that's, that's the best I can say about it. It's not necessarily <laughs> a horrible thing. But he really does kind of, you know, have this, you know, ideal type free market capitalism in his mind. And he really, I think, obviously, I'm not pals with the guy, um, but based on the stuff that he's written and interviews and stuff, he really thinks that, you know, if we just create a better company, we can actually solve, you know, some of these really pressing problems like environmental crisis and you know workers who were degraded and disrespected at at uh at their workplaces um so he's really kind of setting up and again this isn't necessarily a new idea um but he he put this book out there and this idea of conscious capitalism you know particularly after in the mid aughts when people are really thinking about climate change and the environmental crisis um, and it's something that's really appealing to people. I don't know if you, you know, if you read some of the comments on the Guardian page. I read it because I'm interested to see what people think. People f- get really upset um, when you critique kind of this. You know, a lot of people say, yeah, sure, of course, it was never going to work, which I don't necessarily think is the right strategy either. But people get very upset when you say there's something fundamentally wrong with capitalism. Well, something that is almost I. I, I've noticed that's almost ironic is, um, of course, there are a lot of problems with the consumer activism, uh, people deciding to, you know, not use a certain product as a kind of political choice. And people I've noticed uh, start using Whole Foods in that same uh, vein. Like they, they won't shop at Whole Foods anymore because John Mackey is a libertarian. Do you think that's an effective uh, political strategy, or is that sort of playing into his same uh, brand of, of politics? Yeah, no, that's not a politi- effective political strategy at all. It's um, just what John Mackey wants. <laughs> for you yeah, to buy at his like store a, or not buy at his store. It's boycott Whole Foods movement. It's just people who are making a personal call like, oh, I hate that guy, I'm not going to shop there anymore. I mean, you know... I shop at Whole Foods occasionally because it's like three blocks from my house. And I'm always mad when I walk out of the store because I overpay for, you know, a stick of butter. But whatever, it's convenient. So I go there. But that's not, you know, me deciding not to shop there anymore because I don't like libertarians is, is, is not a political strategy. They do have a very solid burrito counter. Oh yeah, all their like what that store is, which always surprises me. <laughs> their buffet me. is great. It's it's overpriced, but I actually like their buffet. Something uh, this is kind of an aside too, but I remember a couple of years ago he got in trouble for uh, being an, on an anonymous chat room that was about <laughs> Whole Foods. <laughs> There's some uh, people funny. who just like write about grocery store, they blog about grocery stores, and people were making fun of his haircut. And he on his uh, anonymous account writes, "I think it's cute." People who people who blog about grocery stores? Yeah, it's a thing. 
Wow, yeah, narcs definitely. and more narcs. Wow. <laughs> Yo, uh. that's also him on the Guardian comment section being like, actually, I think there is ethical consumption under <laughs> capitalism. And it begins at Whole Foods. Also, I wanted to say uh, burritos are very socialist. It's all about distribution and equal distribution. Right, so you yes. mix in different ingredients in the, yeah. yeah. Same, still got the rice and beans base. Um, or it's not a burrito, in my opinion. I'm going no. to I, agree with this because I couldn't deal with it if this was not the case. <laughs> But uh, getting back to slightly more on topic, um, one of the big hurdles to this vision he has, as you point out, is that growth is kind of embedded in any kind of capitalist model. Can you re- and that's isn't that why we can't really have quote unquote conscious capitalism? Is because uh, it, it, we depend on expansion as an economy. I just want to say also cake. Whole Foods makes really good cake. Oh hell Ooh, yeah! Gotta get that. <laughs> Forget the burritos. Go for the cake. (laughs) (laughs) I think the problem, actually, if we're going to talk about sort of the the problems with conscious capitalism, I think one of the, and I couldn't resist writing this article for The Guardian. It comes off as a kind of I told you so article if you've read the book, but... I'm, it's it's not mean spirited. I think the main the main thing I want people to think about is just the sort of the kind of drives of capitalism and how powerful they are. I mean, it's amazing. Capitalism is amazing, right? This is why we talk about it and the kinds of things it can do. I mean, the kinds of changes in the organic food market over the last five years are astonishing. Like how people's kind of you know dietary habits and how companies have changed to uh, accommodate that is really like, wow. Like, you know, you can go into Walmart now or Target now and buy a bunch of organic stuff and it's cheap, right? This is not something that existed 10 years ago. So you really see this kind of, you know, amazing dynamism of the system. But along with that, of course, is this, you know, problem of competition, right? Um, The beans are amazing, but we live in a hellscape. (laughs) It's pretty much the back and forth of that. (laughs) Well, uh, a lot of people don't live in the hellscape. The ones who who shop at Whole Foods and think they're saving the world don't live in a hellscape. Um, And and that's why it's confusing, uh, because their lives are so good, and they can go there and and feel good about themselves, because you don't really see, you can't actually imagine the global value chain, right? You don't see the consequences of you know, all of your actions and everyone else's actions creating the end point, which is this, you know, pyramid of beautiful apples at Whole Foods. So it's hard to see the hellscape. And with people like Mackie telling you, we don't have to have a hellscape if we just have, you know, a better company, if we just act better, if we make better choices, that's very, that's a very appealing kind of model. And unfortunately, it just doesn't work. You know, we're around that point. The interview, the one person we haven't covered yet is Oprah. Friend of the show. Friend of the show, and we love having her on, but she has her faults. <laughs> she does. Uh, I actually, so this was the toughest chapter for me because, <laughs> full disclosure, I grew up in a household, no cable TV, and uh, when you grow up like that and you also don't have friends, um, Oprah kind of filled the void with me and my mom. We used to watch Oprah every day after school. But she's somebody who, uh, she does have her faults. Um, what are most people missing when they, when they, I know, I know I saw in an interview with you, you actually, I think it's your mother-in-law, right, is a huge Oprah devotee, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But she's, is, is she, she's not a, like a, 
she's still a progressively minded person, right? She just there's things yeah. about Oprah yeah, yeah. that uh, most people don't understand just by watching the the, sh- the show. The, or what- the self help portion of it is kind of politically toxic. Right. What about yes? So, so what about Oprah um, is trying to is in a sense trying to alleviate problems that aren't that are fixable under the current system. What? How much of of her self help is actually just responding to uh, things in the broader political and social world? Yeah, I mean, and again, like you know, the chapter is about Oprah. You know, and I have a chapter about Mackie. I have a chapter about Cheryl Cheryl Sandberg. But the point is not to get hung up on these people as people. It's to think about the kinds of, you know, answer and solution that they are presenting you. And the, the people I chose are just presenting the most successful examples, right? They're the ones who are the best at giving you this kinds of solution. So when Oprah is giving her kind of self-help therapy culture um, kinds of solutions, she is not alone. She's just sort of the best at it. And that's why we can easily identify and understand once we think about what she's saying. Because she is an extremely interesting, intelligent person. That's why she's so so successful. You know, when I was reading about her and researching her for this chapter, you know, I really was impressed by just sort of what she has made and created in her life and the kinds of philosophy that she kind of shares and kind of professes as the the secret to her success kind of, you know, you can easily see how it kind of, it did work for her. But again, it's the same, you know, thinking about it uh, in terms of the Sheryl Sandberg model or, uh, you know, this kind of individual solutions don't work when you try to scale them, you know, to actually change society for the better. You know, and when, and it also can, you know, as you say, it can become toxic when people are looking inward to try to find answers to why their life is really awful and terrible when really they should be looking outward at the kinds of structures of society that they live in. This is so this is something I was wondering while I was reading the chapter is what do you think America in the world would look like if Oprah still had was still you know this empathetic dynamic person but instead of looking inward she actually challenged people to be revolutionary. This question's wild. I- I think the world would look a lot better. She's a really charismatic kind of dynamic personality and people are really taken in by her. People, again, they also get really mad about that, uh, about the Oprah chapter. People don't, don't like when you criticize Oprah and it's, it's not that I'm like criticizing her as, as an individual person because she believes what she's saying. It's the, the impact of that kind of thinking is what I think is, is really toxic, particularly for younger people who, you know, are kind of mired in student loan debt. They've done everything that they, you know, were supposed to do, right? They study hard. They go to college. They take out all this, you know, uh, money and debt. They're struggling to, to make it, and they can't. And so they think, well, it's just because I'm not working hard enough. Maybe I should get two jobs or three jobs, or maybe I should only eat rice. When you start thinking about all the things that you should be doing better when it's, it's not, you're not the problem. The problem is capitalism. If the only you had you more pictures of cats holding onto a branch on your wall, <laughs> exactly. you would be, you would be the boss of this town. I don't, the question's so interesting because I'm now just picturing like 
radical socialist Oprah, and I don't think that person has a TV show. <laughs> I don't care how charismatic she is. No, Maybe if it not was at Oprah, first. she would still have a TV show, even if she was even if she was a radical socialist. She would make it happen. Wow, I agree. I think she could. I think she has the the charisma, the charm. Uh, I believe in her. I don't know if she believes in her. You guys to have make that more happen. Trust in individualism <laughs> than I do. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're just saying whether she'd have a show, yeah. <laughs> not uh, whether she'd save the world. Yeah. But something that uh, I've noted, when people do look outwards, in a lot of cases, they look to NGOs, groups like uh, the Gates Foundation. I, I remember personally, I used to be a canvasser for a few months, and I would it was like a microloans, um, sort of a Gates-style uh, NGO. Really? Um, I did this, yeah. And I was actually excited because I, I ended up getting um, canned before this happened, but they were going to move over to Amnesty International. <laughs> they were going to start canvassing for Amnesty International, which, of course, is a political organization. And I remember one of my coworkers was like, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm here to save kids. I don't want to talk about politics. Was there a time where these things became separate, where thinking of, like, changing the world became depoliticized? Well, that's, I mean, an interesting question. And it's it starts to, you know, get into very thorny topics like, you know, consumerism and, and the the kind of ability of capitalism to kind of consume and commodify ideas and, you know, aspirations and, uh, you know, art, all of this kind of stuff, right? So ideas can also become um, kind of packaged and sold. And certainly, you know, we can easily criticize NGOs, and I think that we should, but we can't sort of at the same time, just lump them all into the, oh, NGOs are just the man, you know, bucket, uh, so don't do anything. Like, that's not a good <laughs> that's not a good strategy either. Because right. uh, there are a lot of NGOs that are doing good things. I think it's just, and this is, in, you know, in my very short conclusion, uh, I basically just said, well, what, what should we be doing? And I said, well, one of the things that we can think about is just, you know, the kinds of activities that we are doing what what is the what are the goals right and and do they actually start to you know get at questions of redistribution right do they actually work toward decommodification these kinds of questions and i think if you're working on a project that you can say yes it actually is the project you know like single payer healthcare there's ngos who are working for single payer healthcare and that's great they're awesome because they're actually working on a project that will help decommodify our lives in some way and that's valuable maybe the answer is what if all businesses were ngos man (laughs) (laughs) well i certainly want to thank you for uh challenging our slacktivism as well as our uh our love of of oprah um (laughs) as much as we maintain the personal love uh, but th- thank you so much for, for coming on the show. What What's uh, somewhere p- people can find your work? Are you, You're on Twitter, right? I, I joined Twitter last month, actually. Um, welcome. Huh? <laughs> what? He said welcome. Welcome. <laughs> welcome, yes. Um, it's kind of an experiment. I'm writing a book about uh, smartphones, so oh, I, thought wow. I, should, I thought I should join Twitter. Anders just got Twitter. a smartphone, so this is very pertinent to him. Yeah. As a man. I as a yes, twenty I'm twenty five and I got a smartphone like a month ago. For or against, folks. I mean w- well we'll have to have Nicole back on again for the, the oh, smartphone yeah, dude. episode. So fucking smart. 
All right. Yeah. Thank. Thank anyway, you for joining us. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter, and I also uh, I recently made a website, nicoleashoff.com. But it's a static site. There's really just uh, it's just a place for me to link to my articles. Oh, and great! It's just Lemon Party. <laughs> it has a good <laughs> has a good layout. I can say that much. All right, Nicole Ashoff. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs>